Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste, uh, they, uh, they, boy, do they explode, don't they? <laughs> oh, yeah. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And uh, we're talking about four films this week. That's right. It was Halloween weekend, and Halloween was on a Sunday when we normally record these episodes. So, Whitney, you were you were trick or treating with I your son. Trick or treating, yeah. And trick or treating, um, it's not quite back up to what it was. I can imagine uh, that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Last year, there fortunately, were a lot of... everyone was wearing masks. Uh, mostly, yeah. <laughs> because the Halloween <laughs> handily. Um, yeah. Last year, uh, and I did not get to participate last year, yeah. um, but. Uh, a lot of people were very creative about the way they uh, distributed candy. Some of them used little grabber arms to uh, reach out to kids because, you know, six foot distance. Yeah. Uh, some of them had constructed like little slides or ramps that they could slide the candy oh, down so cool. the kid could hold it like at the bottom oh, of the good ramp. For them. That's adorable. Especially that's, if they really you know, had like an, an elevated porch. That was really handy. I, I love how Halloween turns everybody into a hobbyist. Is everyone, yeah. You know, like. <laughs> you can build something or make craft or make yeah. a decoration. Yeah. yeah you always get, Christmas, you get that a little bit, but no other holiday do you get that. Mm. You think for I, Arbor Day, there'd be a lot of woodwork but no uh halloween in recent years has grown uh to this gigantic financial bonanza for a lot of uh financial institutions this has mm. been like since 2000 or so that's, that's uh, i feel like it, it was growing a little before that but it, it was never like at the enormity it is these i think days. for the candy companies it was but the candy companies yeah can't yeah candy was always big but you know in terms of uh, the parties and all of the ephemera that sort yeah. of goes along the, the with Halloween for adults. The costumes, yeah. etc. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it became much, much uh, bigger than it was in mm-hmm. sort of within my lifetime. And uh, this year it seems to be retracting a little bit. And uh, still, we're still coming we're, out of a pandemic. We're still coming out of a pandemic, and I'm wondering if it will continue to grow or if it will continue to retract going oh. forward. Well, it'll be interesting to see sort of the cultural presence of Halloween because it's changed. Then it could change. Oh, again. sure, absolutely. And 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 it's a local thing too. Like uh, yeah, it's, it's we live not, in LA and worldwide. Trick or treating isn't like prevalent in Los Angeles. There are neighborhoods where people trick or treat a lot, mm. but I we had no trick or treaters last year or this well, year. Well, but you live in a, a security building, so that's true. But there are kids who live in this building. You'd think they would go around and uh, it, no oh, yeah. no, uh-huh. no everyone just goes away somewhere else we, we always have candy just in case <laughs> yeah and no one ever talks about we, yeah we we did that for a while because we also live in an apartment uh with a door that leads directly to the outdoors and so we uh waited for trick-or-treaters waited and waited and nobody came yeah. so we just put all our candy in a big bowl and said to, you know with the take one sign wouldn't you know it, it was empty when we got back Naturally. because the kid who lives across the hall probably just Emptied the whole bowl. I, for my, which, my which, is, we're, which we accept. My we're rule okay is this: that. if you only get one trick or treater, they get all the candy. There you, you go. Got, you keep like one for yourself, and then like um, just the rest of the. Come on, like what? It's there for the kids. If you only get one kid, good for that kid. That kid gets all the candy. That kid put in the right. effort. Kid deserves the candy. Um, we already re- reviewed a Halloween film. Halloween Twelve was last week, uh, but we still got a couple of new horror yeah. movies and uh, and a few other things as well. So this week on critically acclaimed. We're reviewing Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, Paranormal Activity, Next of Kin. Yeah, that came out. Uh, <laughs> Army of Thieves, a prequel to a zombie movie without really any zombies in it, which is a novelty. Uh, we've got the new film Labyrinth of Cinema, which I'm ashamed to admit I haven't had a chance to see yet. And uh, because Halloween is technically over, uh, Coyote Creek Christmas. I like you had to qualify that Halloween was over when you've already reviewed Christmas films this year on this podcast. You know, we like to think we like to think that like 
you know, if you have a Halloween themed movie, it will come out around Halloween. If you have a Christmas themed movie, it'll come out. That's not necessarily true. Gremlins came out in June. Uh huh. You know, like a lot of movies that are like considered like seasonal films or whatever, they come out right. whenever the studio wants to put them out. They're not necessarily. Uh, uh, um, Granted, Hallmark is very, you know, very laser targeted, but that's not necessarily the case. There were two uh, superhero summer action blockbusters that come to mind. Uh, Batman Returns uh, yep. back in the early 90s. Said the dead of winter, yeah, lots was, of Christmas. But that came out in, in mid-June. And uh, Iron Man 3 is also set at Christmas time. Yeah. And I think that one came out in like May or something. Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Mm. So like, yeah, it's, mm. it's not, I think Die Hard came out in the summer as well. Like there's a lot. Yeah. So uh, you know what? You're right. I'm not going to apologize anymore. I'm going to do a Christmas movie whenever the hell I want. Up <laughs> yours. And what is this called? Like the, the coyote, coyote diseased Creek. coyote jamboree or? No. Okay. It's Coyote Creek Christmas. It's a whole creek. Mm. Full, full of coyotes. Of, you think, but that's a twist. And I'll tell you about that Oh my later. God. I'll tell you about that later. Oh, I'm on pins when, and needles. Yeah. But uh, speaking of, uh, uh, I don't know, sharp objects. Uh, let's review Edgar Wright's first, like, full bore horror movie. He made his uh, feature directorial debut. Well, technically, he made a movie when he was really young called Fistful of Fingers, which is a, a cowboy parody, but that's never been officially released in any media. Uh, and then his first proper feature film was Shaun of the Dead, which is a zombie horror comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's great. I like, Shaun, real good. I like Shaun of the Shaun of the Dead is part of uh, what has been called the Cornetto trilogy. Yeah, which is he made with the same cast, even though it's all different characters. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it's a, all three films tend to be about uh, adults growing up, basically. A, a, adults growing up, and specifically yeah. adults who are informed by uh, like the pop media of their teen years. Yeah. Uh, and how they how they are uh, incorporating that into their lives and how it's helping or hindering them. Exactly. Um, and then, of course, he's made a few other films as well. He's, uh, he's written uh, he's written a few films uh, that he has not directed. He he wrote uh, uh, the Adventures of Tintin. He wrote the Tintin with Joe movie. Cornish. He um, I think he's still a credited writer on the Ant Man film. Uh, even oh, I think he, he, I think he has like at least like a story credit or well, something. Which right? I I'm, I think is probably a contractual thing. Like he wrote it I'm and sure. worked on I it think, for a long time. I think time. structurally, it's still basically okay. the movie he came up with. But um, but yeah, so he he's started since the end of the Cornetto trilogy. Started moving into more uh, uh, sort of films that are less about adults growing up. And more about, uh, you know, just stuff, I guess. Well, like, well, it's, <laughs> he's been exploring the genres he likes. Yeah. Uh, well, he's always been doing that, but I think yeah, now but, he's doing it with a little less focus. Yeah, so, um, so Baby Driver was uh, a chase slash heist slash getaway movie with a rockin' soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And it's a little hollow beyond that. It's pretty much, it's, it's kind of cool. Like, the chase sequences are neat. He didn't come up with good like characters or story in that film. Not really, no. It's very, uh, he, very it's, on the surface. There, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really surfacey. But yeah, the the chases are really well yeah. staged. He knows how to you know stage a good chase sequence and set it to music, which yeah. I appreciate. I don't know if he's done a lot of music videos. Yeah, that, exactly. Oh, okay, well, and he's done some really really good ones. He should stick to that because uh, <laughs> Baby Driver uh, did that really well. And uh, earlier this year, he made his first documentary film, The Sparks Brothers. I didn't see that. one. Yeah, which yeah is about the band Sparks, uh, who is enjoying a wonderful renaissance. Uh, mm-hmm. They they Sparks released a film earlier this year uh, called Annette, mm-hmm. directed by Leos Carax. It's an <clears throat> opera that the band Sparks made. Some people so, really love that movie. 
They're wrong, but uh, they do. <laughs> you know what? It's it's an unusual experiment, and I appreciate its audacity, even if it didn't fully work. I can appreciate uh, going, huh, that's weird. Yeah. I just, I don't think it works, but oh, I, yeah. I, I jest, of course. And now he yeah. is, uh, here he is making uh, what is ostensibly a film about nostalgia, but not really, and we'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, he's made Last Night in Soho, which is a horror film, mm-hmm. and... It, Last Night in Soho is about a young uh, fashion student. She gets into fashion school and gets mm-hmm. to move into London. She's really excited about going to the big city. She's played by Thomasin McKenzie, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, who you would probably recognize from Jojo Rabbit or uh, oh, what's the movie she did with Ben Foster? Oh, uh, uh, Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace. Yeah, very mm-hmm. talented actor. Yeah, Leave yeah. No Trace is really good. And she's really good in this until the second half. Uh, where. That's true for a lot where, of where she's <laughs> perhaps pushed into uh, acting not well anymore. She's yeah. very talented, but I think she was misdirected. Anyway, yeah. uh, she moves to London, uh, finding the dorm experience to be incredibly lacking. She's mm-hmm. just completely disturbed by everything that goes on in the dorm. She's grown up uh, fetishizing the 1960s. She yeah. only listens to 1960s music. She's obsessed with 1960s fashion. And uh, her uh, gr- grandmother... Her grandmother. Her grandmother. Who's played by uh, Rita Tushingham, who is a, a famous British actress from the 1960s. She was in a lot of, like, 60s new wave films in England. Yeah, so she's she's crafted within young Thomas and Mackenzie as sort of a fetish for nostalgia yeah. for an era she didn't even live in. Yeah, and, Which uh, is an interesting sort of approach, and, there, it's, and it, there's a lot to say about that. She's also... Uh, her her father's out of the picture and her mother has died and she sees the ghost of her mother in her bedroom uh and this is significant she see she seems to have some sort of psychic power mm-hmm. which is never really defined no no one ever uh, says but, you've got the shinning yeah, you've got yeah, you know this you, is you how have, this is how magic works in her, this universe her, her or... grandmother says like even when you have your vision so this is something that's been happening her whole life uh, and her mother previously went to London and suffered some sort of unseen fate, which led to this spiral of mental illness in her mother. So this is sort of floating yeah. over her. All This movie takes like maybe 30 to 40 minutes to establish all of this stuff before yeah. the real action gets started. There, there's a lot going on here. So uh, Thomas and Mackenzie, she moves to the big city. The dorms suck. Within one night, she's already being like really bullied and mm-hmm. treated like crap by all of her peers. And when the opportunity presents itself to rent a room outside of the dorm, she immediately takes it. No questions asked. And when it turns out that it's in like a small corner of Soho, uh, which is a building which hasn't been really renovated since the 1960s, it still has many of the same fixtures, and is run by, hello, Diana Rigg, awesome. Uh, she's just like, I'll take it, I'll take it. Final film, I think. I think it is. It's yeah. definitely one of them. Um, Diana Rigg, who's, by the way, totally bringing it. Yeah, totally yeah. on point. Like it's not mm-hmm. like, you know, like you could see like you know maybe her heart wasn't in it. Like no, no, no. She's completely laser focused. I said mm-hmm. that already, but like she's just totally. She's so great. <laughs> Diana what an Rigg amazing is actor. Just just absolute champion mm-hmm. of everything. And yes, this is this is uh, Diana Rigg's last role. Uh, so I just confirmed mm-hmm. that. Okay. Um, so she moves in, and as soon as she moves in that night, she has a dream. About being back in the 1960s and sharing a life slash body with a young woman named Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Anya Taylor-Joy is attempting to be an ingenue. She's a singer. She's a dancer. She thinks the world is going to be her oyster. She's incredibly fashionable. She is confident. She is sexually powerful Mm. and in control. Uh, And uh, she meets 
uh, and a, this, this is all in the all over the course of several nights of dreaming. We yeah. get to see Sandy's story. Yeah, Sandy's story and how she's she comes to to England. She makes a name for herself, and she's like falls in with this uh, manager played by Matt Smith from Doctor Who. Uh, and then things start going horribly, horribly bad for Sandy. And what starts off as this kind of well, it's, we get we get the kind of, you want to be a star, don't you? Kind of yeah. vibe, casting couch vibe to all of this. Yeah, and then uh, Thomas and Mackenzie, who initially was taking a lot of inspiration and power from these dreams, starts realizing that uh, a the nostalgia that she has for that time period is based on a superficial takeaway and not actually the full bore exploitation of the mid 20th century especially of women uh but also that uh the story that she has been enjoying is turning nightmarish and she doesn't like it and hmm. that nightmare starts sort of creeping into her real life when she starts seeing more and more horrifying visions and then the movie just keeps going on like that hmm. um it's an interesting setup um there's a lot of very very good horror movies that begin with a psychic moves into a haunted place Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can start that with everything from uh, The Shining or Don't Look Now, uh, but um, this movie doesn't. Well, very... okay, I'm, I'm, let me give it its props. All right, this movie is stylish as hell. Uh, very attractive, this, very attractively photographed. The costume is, uh... design and production design are impeccable. It looks great. Can I say that much? I think that's fair. This is Edgar Wright's great strength as a filmmaker. He is an incredibly stylish filmmaker. He's taken clearly taken a lot of cues from Sam Raimi with mm-hmm. his sort of quick cutting. Yeah. In this one, he's actually uh, a lot more restrained. I think he's trying to create a little bit more mood and atmosphere, and I think he's doing a pretty good job of it. Mm-hmm. The, that entire introductory sequence and the first few dream sequences are really astonishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he in, some really amazing stuff. The way he incorporates the two lead actresses like together, where they kind of see each other in mirrors and sometimes they swap places is all just really virtuosically filmed and it's really exciting to watch. Uh, All of that is done incredibly well. Yeah. The problem is Edgar Wright doesn't know what he wants to say with this. And uh, there is... Structurally, this is sort of like a horror movie about visions and haunted places, but tonally, this is a scare film from the 1930s about the dangers of the big city. And there's a lot of themes of... Not just the dangers of the big city, but the sin of being a fallen woman, which yeah. which is something that you would see in a lot of these 1930s scare films about these young hayseeds from the middle of the country mm-hmm. who would go out to Los Angeles or New York, typically, yeah. uh, or just the big city in and general. And then they would be immediately exploited and, uh, sexually. They'd do drugs. Then it they would, would be, just uh, end, end with them. Don't, don't take drugs. Don't yeah. fall in with the wrong crowd. Don't get into sex and work. And it ends with and, them uh, dying or going to prison yeah, or, completely some, or, destitute some, or, their, or their best or their loved ones dying or something. And it's mm. always is basically whatever you do if you want to survive don't do this Mm -hmm. and that's a kind of horror movie as well but the problem is those kind of horror movies aren't just trying to scare you with the possibility of something they're trying to say this is what it's really like Mm. and that's dangerous and the problem with last night in soho taking so much of of its inspiration from that tangibly or, or or subconsciously uh is it's the 21st century and that's an attitude that rubs people the wrong way now. Mm. And although yes, it is fair to say there is a ton of exploitation going on in the entertainment industry today. Mm. And it was even worse back in the sixties. I am absolutely confident. Um, the absolute one sided nature of this, mm. uh, 
is weird and frustrating and it ends up and i don't I, we don't want to get into the, the machinations of the plot because there are twists and turns by the time the movie ends it becomes abundantly clear that this is a one-sided movie and it doesn't seem to actually have as much sympathy for the women in these situations as you might think mm -hmm. and that is weird in and fact, gross that is very off-putting the sympathy starts to skew uh, in, a, in a really, I don't want to say anything, but a really bad direction. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it becomes this incredibly moralizing fable. And the first half, it actually looks like it's trying to get at something. Not something terribly deep, but this notion that uh, Edgar Wright, who likes remaking genre films, he mm -hmm. loves the film The Driver, hence he no, made Baby he, Driver. He loves the past, doesn't he, he? He loves the past. He's nostalgic. He is a nostalgic filmmaker. He mm -hmm. is trying to revisit genres he liked that growing up and there are filmmakers, a lot of filmmakers who do this. Uh, sure. George Lucas does this. Mm -hmm. uh, Tarantino does Tar this, obviously. Yeah. yeah. There are a lot of filmmakers who sort of work in that. I feel uh, to a degree, uh, Guillermo del Toro does that. I feel mm -hmm. like he can make also like up to date political movies, but he's also exploring genres. Oh, 100%. Yeah. A hundred house film, giant robot film. Sure. Uh, and so there comes a point where maybe those filmmakers need to examine their nostalgia. Why do they have it? What are they getting out of it? Is it entirely healthy? What's good and what's bad about it? And I felt for a second that uh, Edgar Wright was looking at what he personally likes as a filmmaker mm -hmm. about the aesthetic of the 1960s and wanted to delve into that and reveal that it wasn't all rosy, was it? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm reminded of a scene in um, what was it called eleven twenty two sixty three the uh, Stephen King time travel movie. Oh, it was a it was a miniseries. But a yeah. miniseries. Oh, it's, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a scene where the main character in that uh, he he travels back in time to the 1960s and he tries tries to stop JFK's assassination. That's the plot. And there's a scene where he gets a 60s car and he's driving through the middle of America and it's all just like. Un, unspoiled to his eye. Yeah, pastoral. Yeah, it's, yeah all, all these... Americana. He stops and he gets... He just picks an apple off a tree and he eats it. It's like, oh yes, the past really was great. And he stops to get gas. And he says, I'm, I have to use the bathroom. Excuse me, sir, where's the bathroom? And, and he says, well, you don't want to use that one. And he looks up and it's... Uh, uh, and it's a racist. It's a racist. It's a racist. Yeah, white white only. And yeah, it's it's yeah. been segregated. And he realizes, oh wait. Yeah. No, like it all comes crashing down. We don't talk minute. about like, that as often when we talk about how the, great the 60s the, the, the were. You know? The pastoral yeah. past is an incredibly racist time, yeah. and and, the, and our and our collective nostalgia you know. for those times are are often based on, hey, who was a great four? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, the the nineteen fifty the nineteen fifties are we completely ignoring women, people yeah. of color, queer people? Yeah. If most people <laughs> really suck, the nineteen fifties were yeah. great if you're straight and white, and that a yeah. uh, straight white male, and that's kind of it. Male, yeah. yeah, and also yeah, and I'll, don't forget uh, uh, in the good age demographic because. Mm. That also sucks when you're old. Um, yeah, there's there's a saying. Some essayists have found this. You want you you hear it a lot in films of the 30s and 40s, but uh, for a young person to sort of denote their freedom, they say, "Well, I'm." I'm free, white, and 21. Oh, isn't that a disgusting that, phrase? That, that was like just a common phrase that people I, used back I never then. heard that until I was an adult. And when I heard it, I'm like, whoa, what? Yeah, I'm free, white, and 21. I can, I can do anything I want if I'm free, white, and 20. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a horribly uh, so, racist thing to say. So yeah. there's, there's a lot about the past that we tend to idealize. And in order to do so, we have to overlook a lot of the sins of the past. Exactly. I, I felt like Edgar Wright was trying to do that. He was trying mm. to criticize himself a little bit. 
But then he backs way the hell off from that yeah, and turns can... this into this weird uh, ghost story horror movie where Thomas and Mackenzie starts becoming really unhinged for reasons we don't really understand. Here's 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 what's frustrating about this because I think it's a, it's a decent setup and I think once you see how it falls it comes together, I think the setup falls apart too. But when you're watching it, the first forty five minutes or so are pretty solid. Mm. And then there's you can look at it in two different ways. If you really want to try to like take the themes out of it, I think it's a really important part of the film is that the themes are poorly explored and end up falling in a direction that ruins our sympathy for characters who I think we should be sympathetic for in order for the horror to work. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a that's a giant mistake. Mm. But uh, even just if you just want to look at it as here, the supernatural thriller mechanics doesn't work. Mm. The the thrills start focusing mostly on CGI, the uh, and not convincing CGI either. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of the second half of the movie is just Thomas and Mackenzie being scared of CGI shit happening around her, and even that might be okay. But here's here's a big problem with this movie, and I think it keeps it from feeling threatening. Nothing is happening to her in the real world that is mm. dangerous, other mm. than she's starting to. Uh, uh, question her sanity, which should be more of a palpable thing, but ends up feeling more like a, me- a mechanization of the plot well, than actually. It's, it's not you know, um, something out of repulsion or whatever. If yeah. she, but yeah, and even though like there's the the mean girls at school just continue to treat her mean, so it's yeah. not like she, she's losing a friendship. Yeah, she's just starting a relationship with a young man, but yeah. that doesn't seem to be a real risk because he's yeah. actually incredibly warm and understanding about all of this. Yeah, uh, she uh, uh, she has a new job, and her boss yells at her, but she doesn't get a threat of yeah. being fired. She's the Supernatural school, stuff nobody isn't, cares and about. Thing, the yeah. supernatural stuff isn't hurting her or anyone else. It's not mm. like, oh, if you die in the dream, you die in real life. There's one point in the movie, really early on, so it's not a spoiler, but um, where uh, Anya Taylor Joy is making out with somebody, and then Thomas and Mackenzie wakes up with a hickey, mm. and you think, okay, from, so from the dream. Yeah. So we're thinking, okay, so this is the mechanic here. If something bad happens to Anya Taylor Joy, Thomas and Mackenzie is gonna feel it too. But they dropped that immediately, mm. and that would have been a perfect opportunity for her to feel threatened as Thomas, as uh, Anya Taylor Joy's character is more physically imperiled by the abusive situation in which she finds herself. Thomas and Mackenzie would be feeling that, and that would be more like I am not just in mental danger; I am in physical danger, mm. and that would really accelerate the suspense here. Instead, the suspense in the second half of this movie is mostly academic. Oh no, ghosts are here. Well, what are they doing? Well, they're they're pit- scary. They're scary. Okay, mm. okay, okay. That's bad. Are they hurting you? No. Are they hurting anyone you know or love? No. Are they destroying your life in some way? Mostly because of how I react to them. Yeah. Really amplifying the frights here. And when the movie's like a two hour long supernatural thriller, that's a lot of space to fill with not a lot happening. Mm. And that's not great thriller storytelling. It ends up making the movie feel bloated and thin because not a lot is happening. Thematically, it's not very well explored. Even if you want to go full bore and make the scare film like the horror of it, like what if what if there is no good in the universe? And you can totally do that. Yeah. You can totally be completely nihilistic or or masochistic in that's exa- that's exa- or, or totally. sadistic, sorry, sadistic in your in your, but you have to know you're doing that. Mm. It has to feel like a conscious decision on the filmmaker to leave the audience with that. Here it feels like Edgar Wright just got caught up in telling the story. And story isn't that important in horror. What matters in horror is that you connect to people on a subconscious level. And there's something in this movie that repels me on a subconscious level because there's no immediate 
threat mm. that hits me on like you know just just a, just a physical place. Yeah, the mental threat is not handled very well and is mostly academic because we know everything going on is real. So it doesn't really feel like oh maybe this is just her losing her sanity. And then thematically, where it should hit me, like, oh, God, I, I also can be a victim of nostalgia, or I also can, like, overlook horrible things, and, like, oh, man, that, that puts me in this horrible trap, uh, without getting into spoilers, the way the movie ends kind of undoes that. Hmm. Um, it does not work. No, it's stylish. No, no. The, the soundtrack is impeccable. Oh, my God, mm. I'm going to get that. But, like, oh. this doesn't work. <laughs> it's the only end I, I, I can think of that just fl- even Baby Driver, which I think is really hollow. At least it's like a, a cool, like superficial car chase movie. Yeah, the, this, this one, is just not good. It's not the story is not well told. It does fall apart. There's a few just wild visuals that uh, don't really lead to much of anything. There's mm-hmm. a climax at the end where. Um, the Anya Taylor Joy character and Thomas and Mackenzie are sort of in this dream space. Like they're on a staircase. That's there's, there's like awesome. it, it looks awesome in a comic book sort of way, yeah. but it, it has no place in the movie at that particular moment. No, it doesn't really function. Uh, I feel like I feel like Edgar Wright saw hmm. uh, Perfect Blue and was trying to make it do his something own. like yeah, that. But yeah. it does, Perfect Blue is pretty much. I mean, it's 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 brutal and needs some content warnings, but. As a as a thriller, that is it's, everything. It's a this good. Movie it's a good. It was compared to Hitchcock when it came out. Yeah, Perfect Blue, and I think the the comparison yeah, is still apt. Yeah. Uh, here, the, there's no, yeah the the parallels that we're trying to draw between Thomas and Mackenzie and the Andy Taylor Joy character are merely mechanical. It's just plots. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to share much in terms of character. They don't seem to be unlocking much of anything. Even the mystery is not all that interesting when we finally no. solve what's going on. There's like one bit that I'll admit got me. I'm like, oh, I didn't, oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, coming. there's That's something. Fun, you might not see coming, but you know but it's like, not. It doesn't, it doesn't not, make it better. It just yeah, makes it surprising. Terrib- you know, <laughs> not, not terribly interesting. It, it doesn't. The, a good twist will make you reevaluate everything you've seen before mm-hmm. and make the film maybe work a different way. It's one of the reasons why the twist at the end of the Sixth Sense is as legendary as it mm-hmm. is because it isn't just a good twist. It also completely changes everything that came before, and it still works, mm. and it works on a different level. And so every time you see that movie, you appreciate it differently. Yeah. Get Out is the same way. Um, here it's just like oh that was a red herring yeah oh, okay mm-hmm. all right touche I yeah. guess you know. no, nostalgia is incredibly powerful and it's something that uh, you know filmmakers have milked since time immemorial yeah. uh, but I feel like it could have been I, really relevant now because I feel like because people are growing up with people obsessed with the 1980s yeah they weren't yeah. born in the 1980s people were born in 1990 2000 they're adults now and well, they've, they've been 80s nostalgia has been shoved down their throats yeah, their I'm, whole lives they've never lived it they don't know what it was like I, if you go back to here's what I found curious a lot of the I grew up in the 1980s mm-hmm. all, all these films that uh, people my age are now the filmmakers they're the ones making the decisions and remaking yeah. all this stuff uh, so I recognize where the filmmakers are coming from, even if, you know, whether or not we have the same nostalgia, you go back to the films of the eighties. That's full of fifties nostalgia. Yes, it it's is. all greasers and, and it's always 30 years uh, back, you know, 57 Chevys and stuff. Mm-hmm. Look at something like Christine. That's a it's Christine stand by me. Stephen yeah. King was all over it. Well, yeah, stand by me. Uh, Peggy Sue got married back to the future. No, this is know. and this is something that doesn't work for me about uh, the new version of it, which takes place in the late 80s mm-hmm. because they, they kind of time shifted it forward. Yeah. Uh, the, in the the original novel, it took place in the 50s and the 80s. They were kids in the 50s and they're adults in the 80s. Yeah. And uh, 
it's looking and it has that quality I was talking about, how Stephen King was looking back at the 1950s, picking out a lot of the things he liked, but also pointing out there was a lot of violence and bullying and, people and were, abusive people were, families going no, on in the 50s horrible, that weren't we weren't talking horrible about. Horrible violence was everywhere in the 1950s. People were terrified mm-hmm. all the time in the 1950s, and there was... No one, there was, it was considered impolite to talk about it in public, and people were just letting it happen, and that's where a lot of the horror of the first half of it comes yeah. from. In uh, the new film version, of them, they, it takes place in the 1980s, and there is almost no criticism of nostalgia for the 1980s. In fact, it just rolls in the nostalgia of the 80s. It's used as sort of a positive thing. Yeah. Apart from a few references to um, missing kids on milk cartons and how they're like covering up mm-hmm. missing posters, this tiny element of the movie, it, it, seems... it doesn't really seem to be saying anything about the era and how we overlook any kind of harm that was going on in the 1980s. That's an excellent point, by the mm-hmm. way, and although I really, really like that first It mm-hmm. movie... You're 100% right about that. In the original story, it is way more about, like, how that is actually... The supernatural stuff is a metaphor for what was actually going on. And in the in the Andy Muschietti's first It movie, it feels like, oh, the adults aren't paying attention to, like, the plight of children and everything like that. That feels more like Pennywise is doing that. Yeah, yeah. It feels, like, more, it feels more like plot than it is theme. And that yeah, makes it a little less strong, doesn't it? That, and that, yeah. that was a criticism I had of it at the it's time. Fair, I don't think it hurts the movie completely, yeah, but, but it's a fair criticism, yeah. We've been going through a lot of nostalgia. I'm, I'm recognizing it just because I'm that age. And I feel like... Disassembling a little bit nostalgia would be good, and yeah. that's not I something think, last night in Soho is at all interested so in doing. Desperate to move on from the past. The past <laughs> yeah. sucks. Well, we, well, need to, we need to constantly remember it, talk mm-hmm. about it, contextualize it. That's important because the past is everything we've ever been. And but there's, we, I'm, I'm eager mm-hmm. for people to push forward. Yeah. So much right now because so much of our media is based on nostalgia. Mm. A lot of our politics is based on nostalgia. The whole make Mm. America great again shit. Mm. It's just like for very specifically this one group. And then everyone else should be way more oppressed. Like that's what they're saying. We need to go back and we're we're actively trying to recreate the oppression of the past. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's when we liked it best, you you fucks. <laughs> you evil fuck. Anyway, oh, fuck it's, such a, um, it's such a horrible idea. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I know. Whatever. You know. What, let's 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 just let's just move on. Oh, uh, we can talk about another film about nostalgia. You want to talk about another film? About, oh, wait. Okay, well, I was going to segue into another film that was about horror, but All right. we, why, don't we, why don't we talk about another film about nostalgia? Right. Why don't we do that instead? Uh, I'd like to talk about Labyrinth of Cinema. Let's do it. I because, didn't see this, and I'm, and I'm mad. Because Labyrinth of Cinema is one of the best films of the year. I'm really eager to uh, talk about it. Um, this is the uh, the final film by Nobuhiko Obayashi, a name you might recognize if you are a fan of the 1977 cult film House, which uh, sort of kind of exploded in popularity when it was remastered and re-released here in the United States in 2005. It is one of the wildest horror films ever produced. Mm. It Uh, is really strange. Nobuhiko Obayashi uh, was a a director of TV commercials and he directed House like it was a TV commercial. That is a lot of wild imagery, a lot of captions on screen, a lot of like uh, really dramatic poses, really fast editing, weird, wild music, completely bizarre behavior. It's amazing. You should see House. Picture House for three hours. <laughs> Labyrinth of Cinema is three hours in length. And it has that same gigantic, fast-moving energy uh, wh- wow. where there's just... Everything is pouring out at you really, really fast. You're just asked to drink cup after cup of this image. Uh, the plot of uh, Labyrinth of Cinema is these three young film buffs are going to... Uh, their names are uh, Mario, Shigeru, and uh, Hosuke. They're going to a little tiny uh, movie theater 
in Hiroshima that is uh, about to close. And they are celebrating the closure, they're sort of celebrating the life of this theater by having a Japanese war film marathon. Uh, and, of course, there's all these, uh, before we even get to that, there's all these weird introductions where we get to see the filmmaker introducing the film, we get to see people dictating as to what's going on uh, as they watch from a satellite in space where there's fish floating around through the air. Uh, and then we finally get into this theater, we see these three young men, and through a weird fluke of last-action hero-like magic, they find themselves sucked into the screen, and suddenly they're living through all of these uh, classics of Japanese war cinema. And uh, their quest, as they land there, first of all, they start uh, arguing, as, uh, like, in the movie Scream, the details of, like, what goes on in these types of genre films, these uh, Japanese war movies. This happens at this point, and now we have to go here. And uh, ultimately, they find that there's a common character running, this new imaginary character running through all of these Japanese war films, this young woman named Noriko, who's played by an actress named Rei Yoshida. And they try to... Uh, and they're trying to rescue her. She sort of fulfills different functions as they kind of move from film to film. Also, as they are going through all of these war films, they also know a lot about Japanese history. And they talk at length about how Japanese cinema, and indeed cinema in general, has been perpetuating a lot of very unhealthy views when it comes to war and violence. Hmm. Uh, films are all propaganda on a level. They all are trying to sell a point of view, aren't they? Yes, whether They're, it's the yeah. authors or the mm. corporations or the countries mm. or the parties or whatever, yeah. What the Labyrinth of Cinema is arguing is that cinema has a lot to answer for mm -hmm. in terms of how the public views war in particular mm. and how it views combat and how in cinema we tend to uh, depict soldiers from our own countries yes. as bold, peerless heroes who are serving the good and the good is the nation. When in fact there's a lot of dark, violent shit in war because war is nothing but dark, violent shit. And, the parts of history that are glossed over don't make their way into the movies. And the types, and even if we're showing biographies of certain soldiers, we tend to overlook and change a lot about their lives in order to make them into movie characters. Mm -hmm. And this is this gigantic three-hour hyperkinetic film. There's a, every third shot, there's a caption on the screen, so and people are constantly yelling dialogue and giving you backstory. So you're, your eyes are just going cross trying to, you know, pick up all these different captions and listen to all of the dialogue. And, you know, I'm watching it with subtitles, so I have to read all of this. Uh, and it's all kind of whisking you up into this gigantic miasma of criticism against filmmaking in general and how irresponsibly it's been wielded throughout history. Yeah. And yet it's incredibly funny. <laughs> <laughs> Nobuhiko Obayashi is a very funny filmmaker. Oh, He's yeah. a very energetic like, filmmaker. You ever see he his movie, to, uh, uh, The Drifting Classroom? No. It's 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 so weird to me that House got this huge boost in America mm. and a very similarly strange 
horror movie, well, horror sci-fi kind of thing called The Drifting Classroom. Never did. Mm. Uh, it's based on a manga series, and it's about a high school that falls into a gigantic sinkhole. It's like that movie, <laughs> it's like the TV show La Brea, but yeah. it falls into an alternate, like, reality. Where that's like, <laughs> it's like Land of the it, Lost. It, it, it's like... This, it's like Saturn from Beetlejuice. They're like surrounded by sand and shit, and they're just living in their high school. And monsters keep attacking them, but they befriend some of the monsters. And now our teacher is turned into a giant cockroach who keeps playing the piano, and it's really fucking weird. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah uh, he he is not a subtle minimalist filmmaker. <laughs> no, no, he's not. Uh, and uh, he actually gets like some filmmakers to come in and uh, play uh, and comment on their work. Like yeah. they have an actor coming in, and and he's a filmmaker named Ozu. So Ozu is in this movie. <laughs> it's like sitting in a director's chair, saying, "Yeah, these war films. Do you, 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 did you notice my films were all about sort of the how the country fell apart after the war? Oh yes, I did notice that. Thank you, uh, other filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, so this is a bold, glorious act of criticism about Japanese cinema and cinema in general. Um, Here in the United States, we don't tend to do that kind of criticism. We tend to uh, present violence in a very exciting sort of way. The most popular genres tend to involve a lot of violence. And when we do, it tends to get overlooked. I I was thinking about when you were talking about that, Mm. uh, the Scream movies. Mm -hmm. There's a line in the first Scream that I think gets used a lot, but isn't necessarily used in context. Yeah. Which is, uh, movies don't, I, I'm going to paraphrase, movies don't make killers, movies make killers more creative. Um, I think it's Psychos, actually, is what they say. Mm. Um, and that's that's the opinion of the killers mm. in Scream. Note who this comes from. The killers <laughs> think that... The movies aren't to blame for violence. And then what is Scream 3 about? Okay, maybe movies aren't to blame for violence, but the movie industry sure is perpetuating it. Yeah, Scream 3 is about how the movie industry has a lot to answer for and that mm. they have been perpetuating, in particular, mm. misogyny yeah. and the exploitation of women in particular. And how mm. that the movies that continue to be made by men who have a lot of power and use it to hurt people are leaking into an entire culture aren't mm. they and they yeah, actually they, do have they, an uh, impact this isn't so much about the industry this is about uh, a, no. a little bit more about the art and the way it's well, been I think, used i think they're interlinked though mm. and i think when well, my mm. point is that when scream 3 tried to actually criticize a larger scale of things rather mm. than just saying ha isn't it funny mm. when in slasher movies people run upstairs instead of outside when it finally started to get into like really mm. horrible commentary, that's mm. when people say, "Oh, Scream Three isn't the good one. <laughs> we, we weren't ready for that." Is, is I think what it was, was a, going, a, a going little too too a little yeah. too deep there. Yeah, uh, yeah. Movies, especially here in the United States, tend to uh, celebrate violence. Uh, there's you know, action pictures are all about heroic violence, about committing acts of heroic violence. Uh, he committed murder. It's okay. A good guy killed a bad guy. And that's yeah. okay. Uh, well, no Schwarzenegger line from True Lies. Yeah. Did you ever kill anybody? Yeah, but they were all But they were bad. all bad. Literally yeah. every single person I've killed, and I've killed a lot of people. Yeah. I did a background check. <laughs> they did not deserve to live. Yeah. That's the road we're going on in this Hollywood movie. Uh, some some people have bristled when I suggest that the Avengers are uh, nothing more than a freelance military. They're led by a guy who's carrying an American flag and is named Captain America. And they gather on a battlefield. Yeah. It's It's... It's not even subtext. No, they're literally like the, the uh, opening of like Age of Ultron is them doing what essentially a military mission. Yeah. The opening yeah, of Captain America Civil War is them doing what is essentially a military mission. The, uh, they're a military. The, the Avengers uh, are, and so this is why uh, 
people have said that the Avengers films are military propaganda. They're, mm-hmm. they're meant to make the military fighting seem really exciting. Mm-hmm. Joining the American military force makes you a superhero. Yeah. Uh, and fighting solves problems. Fighting solves. And that's something that, uh, it is very, very prevalent in American cinema. It's very, very prevalent in all war cinema and any nation that's making films during wartime. It's like, oh, war is, is bad, but this time, this time it's, it's okay, and our soldiers are the good ones. And yeah. uh, you only need to look at the propaganda of another nation to see it a little bit more clearly. Uh, because you're not getting swept up in any of your own nation's uh, mm-hmm. jingoism. Yeah, once it, once once you're looking at it from mm-hmm. the perspective of, oh, that's not me, mm-hmm. you start, well, hopefully you'd see it anyway, mm-hmm. but like regardless, yeah. Uh, Labyrinth of Cinema is a very explicitly anti-jingoistic film. Mm-hmm. It's trying to look through all of that propaganda and explain to the audience, with as many words as possible... <laughs> That what they've been consuming through a whole history of cinema has been this labyrinth and the Minotaur is violence. Uh, That there's all of this wartime violence that we have come to accept in society thanks to the way film has been selling it to Mm -hmm. us. And film has a lot to answer for. And Nobuhiko Obayashi is really incredibly critical of that i think that's an important message to put in cinema an important criticism of cinema that we don't see in films ever especially not here in the united states and on top of it all it's fun to watch and yeah and on top of it all well first of all you're gonna need a lot of energy like i said this is a three-hour film and it doesn't stop it is just madness all the way through which i adore I adore it. It's like watching It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. After a while, you're just exhausted. Yeah. But you realize there's still an hour and a half to go. Uh, <laughs> thank God there's an intermission on that one. Yeah, Mad, Mad World. It's like yeah. you need to lay on the floor with a pillow over your head for a little bit <laughs> just to sort of calm yourself down. Uh, there is there is an intermission in, uh, in this one as well, oh. but it's played for laughs. It's oh. like the intermission in Monty Python and oh. the Holy Grail. It's like, okay, we're going to have a short intermission now. Go on to the lobby if you like. Okay, we're back. <laughs> also, in Monty Python, it happens like five minutes before the end of the movie. Yeah, and kind of, and randomly too. Yeah. Yeah. Like right in the middle of, they're just walking across. A, they're walking across the bridge. Mm. Intermission, mm. and we're back. I've, uh, <laughs> they're, I've, they're just going across the bridge. Again. I've projected that before, and during that scene, I bring the lights up in the house. <laughs> <laughs> That's very William Castle of you. I love. Yeah. It. <laughs> it's, like it, you. it's intermission. Okay, get up. Go. 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 Stretch. Stretch your leg. Okay, we're back. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, this this is like um, it, it's like a Monty Python view of war, but it has really poignant and important things to say about war. I think Monty Python actually does have important like they, they yeah. when they did Holy Grail when they did Life of Brian. You can look at it now and you can see some of the mistakes that they made, but they had big ideas. They were well, critical. If you look at uh, Monty Python, the, the TV show and all of their films, they were they were also media critics. Yeah. They were looking at a lot of uh, TV forms that were on British television at the time and lampooning them. Yeah, they were trying to explode the idea of expectation and genre. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. There's a, a one, one uh, sketch where... Uh, there's all this like really tense sort of action news music and it's over just like a montage of, of jars. Yeah. Just like empty jars. <laughs> And then uh, they cut to the studio and Eric Idle swings around in his seat. The lights go up very dramatically and he looks into the camera and as intensely as possible says, Welcome to Storage Jars. <laughs> and, and it's all about, it's, it's just this bit about like the most mundane object you could think yeah. of, storage jars. But they're selling it like it's this really exciting action, action news segment. I don't remember that one. They're using media to criticize media. Um, and that's what Obayashi is doing here. Yeah, well, we is, he's he's cri- criticizing war films in a really important way. Please, please, please seek this out. It's in yeah. like virtual cinemas was, right now. You can I was, find it uh, online. I was, I, was, I, was, I was at the weed store 
<laughs> because like, it's the like, 21st century and like, we have those like, now. Like you do. And I was just, I was, I was mm. getting, getting mm. the weeds. And uh, the person at the store looked at my shirt and said, oh, is that a Hauzu shirt? Mm. And it wasn't, but it looked kind of like it. And I was like, oh yeah, did you know that that mm. filmmaker has a new movie out this week? And the guy's like, what? <laughs> and I feel like this has gone a lot under the radar. And I'm bummed that I didn't get a chance to see it. I've had such a busy couple of weeks. I had it like on my list. Please see this movie. But mm. carving out three hours was difficult. Yeah, um, so, no, yeah. Nobuhiko Obayashi died recently. Uh, he, um, he he had stage four cancer and was directing this film while he was receiving oh. treatments. Uh, he died in April of 2020. I can't imagine. I, uh, I, 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 I can't imagine that's like it's like when David Bowie made his last album and he realized like yeah he knew he was dying and then you listen to that album and you realize how much it is about that mm. God it's a good album um but yeah that's mm. well thank God he gave us one last gift yeah, that's one, amazing one last amazing yeah. amazing film it's it really is one of the best films of 2021 yeah. there is no it. good segue between that and any other movies we have <laughs> so let's just run into the next like big one all right and uh, this is the latest entry in a long running horror franchise this is Paranormal Activity. Next of Kin. Now, the Paranormal Activity franchise is incredibly successful, in large part because it's incredibly cheap. The original Paranormal Activity... Easy to make and effective. The original Paranormal Activity movie was an independent film made for next to nothing. I think the Blair Witch Project cost more. Uh, And it was about uh, a couple in a house and uh, the young woman, played by Katie Featherston or Featherstone? Featherstone, I think was her name. Katie Featherstone. Um... She has, since she was a child, been haunted by some kind of supernatural presence. And her new boyfriend, or the boyfriend she's moving in with, rather, uh, doesn't believe in that shit and Mm. decides to poke the bear. And uh, things start going wrong, and she's like, hey, can we stop doing this, or can we call, like, an expert to deal with our supernatural problem? And he's like, no, I can fix the plumbing myself. And sure enough, the house gets flooded, Mm. except it's with demons, and then everyone dies, and it's horrible. Uh, that first Paranormal Activity movie is terrifying. I That movie scared the crap out of me. I think it is incredibly effective in how understated it is. I think it's got a very simple uh, uh, theme about sort of how people don't listen to each other in relationships and how that creates problems that just escalate. And I think that really works well. Um, it works because it's a little unexpected. It works because it's understated. And it was a huge, gigantic hit. So, of course, we needed to repeat that over and over again. And every single time you repeat it, the less subtle and unexpected it gets. The first one was basically... Sorry, this first sequel was basically the first one all over again. Paranormal Activity 3 was kind of novel because they did the found footage gimmick, but like in the 80s. So they had to go with a bunch of of VHS gimmicks. And that one's actually pretty good. Hmm. Pretty creepy. Works. Paranormal Activity 4 is the one where they tried to make the Microsoft Connect scary. That's uh, effective in that one scene. It's it's it's, the, it's uh, just kind of forgettable. Like, it's not bad, but it's well, just the, sort of like... Eh. The, the shtick is there's one... Uh, and that's the one I saw. I didn't see 2 or 3, but I did see oh, 4. Yeah, and two, um, three, 2 is okay. 3 is very good. All right. I, yeah. I saw 4 and I saw the marked ones, which I think doesn't count as 5 for some reason. No, um, but, it, it, I'll, I'll get into that in a second, yeah. but yeah. But, uh, yeah, and 4, the, the Connect... Uh, we get to see like through a black light how it works and how it sort of like casts a bunch of laser beams around the room and bounces yeah. off your body. 
And there's a bit where we get to see a shot where it casts all those lasers and we get to see a human shape that's not yeah. there in the lasers. Like, it, it, I'll, I'll give them this. They put in the work and they tried to make that creepy, but we know you're selling us a Microsoft Connect. I think the one you're thinking of, there was actually a forgotten Paranormal Activity movie, which I've never seen, called Paranormal Activity Tokyo Night. I think, oh, and it was okay. made in Japan, and it was the mm. par- it was the second Paranormal Activity movie, uh, but I think it's only nebulously canon, and as usually, I don't even think it's had a proper release in America. Mm. Um, Paranormal Activity Five: The Marked Ones is considered canon, but it's also it, it's it's noteworthy in that they tried to make it like about a Latino community. Mm. Um, which is cool, and there's a lot of fun characters in it, but the more it reveals about the storyline, the more it just completely falls off the rails. Um, well, it the, turns the out that there's a bunch of witches who are yeah, trying to create a supernatural army of super soldiers. Yeah, there's like a cult that's inducting yeah. people, and they're marked, hence the title. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, the, get... the actual mythology of this series makes no sense, and it kind of changes from film to film. It actually, with the exception of the marked ones in Ghost Dimension, which adds 3D into it, you know, found footage 3D, because they created a 3D camera to capture the ghosts. Yeah, is that, is that really the premise? That yes, it is. Camera? Okay. Yeah, they created a the, the, someone like because they thought they found were found 3D ghosts. footage. Yeah, okay. you know how it is. Um, that movie doesn't work at all. The movie's very predictable, even it scares. But uh, the actual main storyline of the Paranormal Activity movies, leaving the last two out of it, is actually pretty effective mm-hmm. and it's all about uh uh like people making a deal with a demon and then that demon just sort of haunting this family generation after generation and over time they interact with it more and more and it starts taking a more active mm-hmm. element in their lives and it becomes kind of the story about sort of generational evil and and there's there's something to it actually when you just leave it focus symbol but the more they tried to build it out mm-hmm. the less effective it got and that's true for most things isn't it like think about like how many people scoff when halloween started saying like oh yeah no michael myers was a supernatural creature created by the cult of thorn to prevent the apocalypse and you oh. lost me you made it, it too, you made it too complicated it in the novelization of halloween kills oh no what, I didn't hear about this. What, what is this there's a very passing reference to uh tommy the uh uh, uh Oh, who who played Tommy and uh, Anthony Michael Hall? Anthony Michael Hall plays Paul Rudd in Halloween Six. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Anthony Michael Hall character Tommy, who was a little boy in the original Halloween, right. has a mysterious tattoo that he's always rubbing, and it's the oh, Cult of Thorn no! tattoo. Yay! Yay! <laughs> I love it. Bring it all back. So they they got it all in there. Re ruin it. Re ruin it. Bring I it. love how messy slasher movie franchises get. Um, <laughs> we're gonna bring. We're gonna, we have nostalgia even for the shit. I know. Uh, Paranormal Activity is a big old mixed bag of a series. Yeah. One and three are great. Okay. The rest of them are not great, and so I thought four was okay. It's, it's it's watchable. It's as is uh, too. Like they're not like terrible movies. They're just not. They don't stick out of like in my mind. You know, this it it was sort of done to the point where people got sick of it. But the found footage conceit is something that I kind of appreciate. It's a uh, neat idea. The, the idea that uh, and they only really sort of play into the this was found and we assembled it angle a couple of times before yeah. they kind of abandoned that and it just became an aesthetic after a while. Yeah. Uh, Apollo 18, uh, the original Blair Witch Project, yeah. and uh, what was uh, Grave Encounters. Those are all about, we found this like at an abandoned site, and yeah. this is this is what we found. And we're there, there are others, but like, yeah. yeah. So somebody actually edited these films somewhere. Yeah. The idea uh, is that all the footage was captured by people filming it themselves. Mm. That's 
something there's something kind of creepy about that because a this is like lost footage and like we saw we caught someone's last known photograph kind of mm. but in film form makes it feel a little bit more immediate mm. and real it's also almost like a dogma 95 thing where like you're mm. creating a series of rules that filmmakers have to follow uh, you're not allowed to add diegetic music. You're not mm-hmm. allowed to show anything that wouldn't have been filmed on their cameras. Uh, and um, that creates a unique set of challenges that a filmmaker has to choose to undertake. And if they can do it well, it's very effective. There's a lot of good found footage movies out, of that, out mm. there. I keep waiting for like the genre to be sort of... I mean, there's a lot of crap, don't get me wrong. One of the one of the issues with it is that it's so easy to recreate that it's easy to do badly. But, but uh, like, because right. there's a ton of, like, really cheap, not very good ones out there that people mm. didn't really try. But well, if you I try hard, there's the, a lot of really good ones. But I appreciate that kind of dogma aesthetic because it moves toward, A, a little bit more uh, genuine moments of panic if the mm. actors are good, and... Uh, those wonderful moments where the camera is totally still and the night vision camera's on and we're looking at a chair and nothing's happening in the frame and we just sort of look at the chair and you are waiting for that chair to move on yes, its own. you are. And you're looking at it and you're looking at it and it moves and you're scared. Yeah. And it's fun. Because, and that's great because one of the things that a lot of horror movies struggle with is the idea that this is a world in the, we, most horror movies take place in a world where the supernatural isn't commonplace. Mm. There's a few in which they are. You know, it's, this is a world where vampires are real and they're everywhere, like True Blood or whatever. That's a show, but you know yeah. what I mean. Usually it's people who live their whole lives not encountering the supernatural and then something scary happens. Mm. If all of a sudden you uh, like looked out your window and there was a werewolf there, that would scare the living shit out of you. Yeah. If you lived in a world where werewolves were your neighbors, you'd go, oh, hi, Ted, and that would be fine. When a movie establishes that this is a universe in which supernatural occurrences are just, this is just what the movie's about, mm. we're ready for it. Yeah, we're, look- we're looking hard, for it now. It's hard to reclaim that sense of normalcy that is then replaced by horror. Uh, and found footage is particularly good at that because they allow themselves those long moments where you're just looking at a static frame. Mm. You're not expecting the visual language of cutting and cross-cutting. So you're getting really used to this frame. This frame becomes your normal. And then anything that breaks the reality of that frame Hmm. is shocking. And there's a lot of filmmakers who've done this in other mediums as well. One of the scary shots in movie history is a shot of a hallway in The Exorcist 3. Yeah. Where you just get really comfortable with this shot and then something terrible happens and you don't know where it came from and it's great. Uh, Another good one, another filmmaker who did this really, really well was Lee Winnell in his remake of The Invisible Man. Where he would do all of these shots where the camera just sort of lingers on nothing when oh, someone the, moves the, out of frame. The, and kitchen, you, the kitchen shot where nothing happens or does it. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and you're just sort of looking at it and it's just like, is there an invisible man in this shot? I interviewed Lee Winnell and he's like, is every single time the camera like lingers on nothing, is the invisible man there? And he was like, maybe not. Maybe. <laughs> and that's the thing, you don't know. Yeah. You don't know. And so like you're getting used to this sort of visual quietude. That, that, um, that movie effed me up. That movie is <laughs> so amazing. Uh, um, so anyway, anyway, but so, to so, Paranormal Activity 7. Okay, so Paranormal Activity 5 and 6, I, I think they made money, but they kind of made the franchise just kind of less popular mm. and it didn't work. And... Uh, so it, they went well, on they, ice for a few years. So I've now seen one, one, uh, four and seven. These are the, <laughs> one, four, five, and seven are the only ones I've seen in this series. All right, I've seen them all. Kind of, kind I've seen them ca- all. Catching them as they pass by. I, I've seen them all, and the idea is okay. So we're going to reboot the franchise. Paranormal Activity: Next of Kin does not connect to the mythology of the original series. It does not. It's its own thing. Hmm. Not the end of the world. 
but just to be aware of it when you go in, if you're expecting the continued adventures of Toby the Demon, that's not in here. That's This is its own thing. They, and um, to the extent that this doesn't even feel like a paranormal activity movie at all, because this is about like people making a documentary and things go bad. So it feels more Blair Witchy than anything else. Uh, but it is about a young woman who, uh, she's, she's an orphan. She never knew her birth parents. And she goes on that 23andMe website to try to find her family. Hmm. And finds a long-lost brother. She turns out she has a long-lost brother uh, who, it turns out, is actually Amish. And by sheer coincidence, or is it, uh, he happened to try 23andMe while he was on his Rumspringa, which is a uh, ritual in uh, a lot of Amish communities. I don't think everyone does it. But uh, where young people are allowed the opportunity to go outside of Amish culture and try out living Outside of the Amish way of living, Amish way of living is very much is very rural. You're only allowed to use technology that's like actually mentioned in the Bible, that kind of thing. Um, that's an oversimplification, but just in case mm. you weren't 100 percent clear on it, it's people living in farms in uh, mostly in America, and they don't interact with the modern world. Um, Rumspring is an opportunity for young people to choose to live the Amish lifestyle, mm. and you do spend some time outside of the Amish community. And there's a good documentary about it. What's it called again? It's called The Devil's Playground, I think. The Devil's Playground, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's a really good film. Yeah. Um, and you can find out more about it there. So he was on his Rum Springer and he tried 23 in May. And it turns out he has a sister. And she decides to go with her boyfriend and they enlist a sound guy uh, who's local uh, to document her visiting her birth family. Her mother left her at a hospital. She looked very, very scared. We don't know what the deal is with that. Now she's going to spend some time with her weird and creepy Amish family. And it turns out they're weird and creepy. They're, they're Amish, but they're creepy Amish. Yeah. Are they cannibals? Because that's the vibe you get right away. Oh, is that, that what the vibe you got? Well, okay. and there's also, you know, some... some ho-hum Midsommar kind of culty stuff going on, but it really Midsommar does... took all of its cues from The Wicker Man. Anyway, so it, yeah, it's this drawing is... from a lot of film the, traditions. The, this is the tr- it feels very specifically like Midsommar because mm. Midsommar was popular, but like this does it, this is basically city folk I'm sorry someone's uh, vacuuming or something it's, outside. It's a or... leaf blower out there, yeah. Right, we did a little bit of a cut here because the machine kicked really close to the window, but where were we? Uh, so they go to, the, so it's uh, the, basically this whole genre of we come to this sort of rural community from these urbanites' perspective, and is it is it scary? Are they just are we just not used to their culture, or is something really horrible going on? And inevitably, something is really horrible going on because uh, uh, movies tend to take the perspective of urbanites. <laughs> and uh, this is one of the reasons why no, Tucker no. versus Dale is so clever. Uh, never leave the city. Never, never leave the city. Also, never go to the big city. Those are yeah. the messages we're getting from the films this week. Thanks, Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, it turns out there might be some creepy stuff going on. Maybe her mother is still there. Maybe she's not. Uh, the first two thirds of this movie mm-hmm. are generic <laughs> found footage <laughs> pabulum. Uh-huh. Just absolute. Middle of the road. What's for lunch? White rice and mashed potatoes. It'll fill you up, but there's mm. nothing to that. There's a couple of jump scares that got me. I was like, ah, oh, 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 someone in that window. Touche. <laughs> uh, but it's just familiar as hell. Mm. So it was directed by a filmmaker named William Eubank. Uh, William Eubank directed a film called The Signal which is this low-budget sci-fi film about people mm. uh, trapped in like a 
scientific facility, mm. and then it, it gets really fucking weird in the last mm. act. He also directed I, the I, film. I dig that movie. I think I, it's good. I don't think it works, but mm. I appreciate its audacity. Uh, he also did Underwater, starring Kristen Stewart, which starts out as a disaster movie and then gets really fucking wild in the last act. <laughs> Paranormal Activity, Next of Kin, starts out as a very traditional found footage movie and it gets really fucking wild in the last act. Getting there is a chore, though, because that first two-thirds mm. is boring. The first two-thirds is really boring. They're dropping all of these weird hints about what's going on, but we are way ahead of this movie mm-hmm. because we've seen movies before. Uh, there's not a lot of originality in terms of, like, the spooky imagery. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, they're sacrificing a two-headed goat. Even that's not all that shocking. Uh, and Yeah, somehow then, I forgot about that. That's not the, even that. They, they make that not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there's the inevitable scene where they caught their... They still have their cameras on because they're using them from light, and they come upon this, the creepy hole. There's a big pit in the middle of a barn that leads, like, a, a full story down into the earth, and they have to lower themselves down on a rope. And yeah, that's that's when it kicks yeah. into high gear. There's, there's a lot of action. There's, there's a lot of intensity. Be a, there's definitely going to be something creepy down there and a lot yeah. of death and monsters and whatever. Yeah. But uh, And to be fair, once it gets there, it's pretty breathless, mm. and it picks up, and I was interested. It's the stuff that doesn't work. Uh, this movie break, breaks one of the single cardinal rule of found footage movies, which is the footage needs to have been found, or at least capable of being found. Mm. There's like three shots in this movie which aren't filmed by a camera. There's there's a, a scene right near the end where yeah. um, Someone it, dropped- in the middle of a found footage sequence where the, the, it's like a lot of handshaking yeah. and a lot of people screaming right at the lens and we're only seeing it from the camera yeah. light. And then there's a cut to uh, something that's happening off camera. Like yeah. very briefly, just like a bit of action. Yeah, no one. There's no camera within the movie back, that could have yeah. got that footage. And that then they cut exist. back to the found footage. It's like, how it, do you do that? It's this weird stylistic whiplash. It's communicating what's happening rather than sticking yeah. with a style. And you'd think I, I can only imagine that the idea behind that sequence was we're going to blow their minds hmm. by breaking the rule that they've come to respect this visual language. But it doesn't play like a, whoa, what an amazing reveal. It plays like you forgot to record that on a camera within the movie, and this is like a reshoot or something, maybe? Mm. There's a really fun movie that Noma talks about called Wreck 3 Genesis, R-E-C. It's the second sequel to the movie Wreck, which was remade in America as Quarantine. Uh, Sorry, but the machine's still going in the background. Mm. Hopefully it's not too bad. But but, uh, the first Wreck is very, very good. It's very straightforward found footage. It's one of the better found footage horror movies. I actually think the remake is pretty good, too. Um, Wreck 3 is about zombies attacking a very large wedding, which is not bad for found footage because a lot of people are filming it, right? Mm. It's a very large wedding. It's expensive. Anyway, uh, but there's the first act of the movie is just, it's like, it's like the deer hunter. You're just getting used to this wedding and all these (laughs) characters. And then the zombies attack Mm. and everyone runs away. And then some people lock themselves into a kitchen and someone's got their camera. And someone does, and this is a line that's in a lot of found footage movies, which is, why are you still filming this? And usually they say something like, I don't know what else to do, or people deserve to know the truth, or whatever. In this movie, in Rec 3 Genesis, someone says, why are you still filming this? And someone says, I don't know what else to do, people need to know the truth. And then someone slaps the camera out of that guy's hand, breaking it, and then the rest of the movie is not found footage. That's hilarious. It's really cute, and it's a fun movie. It's actually a comedy from that point on, and it's really fun. And that movie is a is a hoot. I hope more people see it. Um, but anyway, this doesn't. That's done with purpose, though. That's yeah. done as a joke. That's done to pull the rug out from under us. This doesn't feel like it's done with purpose. This this just feels like a thing they did. 
and they didn't think it was <laughs> yeah. important. Yeah. It's, it's like you can't really do that. You 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 you, you did a you did a bad found footage. <laughs> you didn't find all your footage. Yeah, you had to get it. Yeah, you had to just sort of throw that in there somewhere. It doesn't doesn't work at all. Um, I mean, I've seen worse horror movies, but it, mm. it's just. I, I had to struggle to keep my eyes open for parts of the first two-thirds of this movie. It's just so rote. It, it's slow. It's rote. The characters aren't interesting. This takes place on an Amish community, but they're not presenting it in any kind of unusual way and things we haven't seen in movies before. Uh, yeah, it is just... It's just dull. It's just a dull horror film, and boredom is the antithesis of being scared, isn't it? There's a, There's a few fun visuals uh, near the end uh, when things just start going a little crazy. But that's not enough to make up for all of the, the slog we had to go through at the start. Mm. I'm completely pulling my hair out because of the leaf blower. <laughs> this, like, yeah, we this have to record. <laughs> we, don't, we can't wait a long time. So, uh, uh, let's I hope talk. it's not too annoying. But, but anyway, so the movie is, is, again, I've seen worse, and but it has nothing to do with the rest of the Problem Activity movies, for better or worse. Uh, and it, it ends okay. Like, if you want to sit through it and get to the ending, the ending will me go, ooh. Mm. But um, it's not great. It doesn't really work. Um, moving on, there is a we, we had a sequel. Here's a prequel to a zombie movie from this year. <laughs> from this year, which I can't remember the last time I saw that shit. This is like this is like breaking and breaking two electric boogaloo territory. Uh, so Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead came out uh, just like six months ago, mm-hmm. um, and it was a big epic all star zombie heist film uh, mm-hmm. that took place in a world where zombies took over Las Vegas. Las Vegas is then walled off, but it turns and they're going to nuke it to like eliminate the zombie infection. But before they do, someone hires a bunch of people to go in and steal a bunch of money from a vault, mm. and that's where we meet the protagonist of this prequel and the uh, director and the director, which I did not know about. Uh, uh, the, the character is. Um, in, in this film, he's called Ludwig, uh, even though in uh, Army of the Dead he's called Sebastian. Or did I mix you that mix up? You up. Oh, he's in, like, his name was, in the original, oh, his name was Ludwig Dieter. Uh-huh. But uh, here we actually meet him, and he is, oh, he has a really hard to pronounce name, actually. Uh, Sebastian uh, Schlenkt Vonert is, is the character's name. Yeah, uh, he is played by a really wonderful actor named Matthias Schweighofer. I uh, hope I'm pronouncing that okay. Uh, who is a, a, a director in his own right. Yeah, he's, and in Germany, he's an actor and director. Apparently, mm-hmm. uh, someone was telling me, I don't know how true this is, but I believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's best known for comedies Yeah, the, over there. Um, and but, this, is, uh, this is his sixth film as a director, so he's, he's got, got a career yeah. behind him. So the idea is, this is how the safecracker from Army of the Dead became a safecracker. And uh, so uh, we, meet, we meet Dieter, and uh, Dieter is... Uh, oh, sorry, Dieter Ludwig, or whatever. Anyway. Yeah, well, Ludwig Dieter. Whatever. We meet Dieter. We meet Sebastian. We meet Sebastian. We meet Matthias Schweighofer. There you go. <laughs> uh, and he is—he's got a—he's got a crappy day job, but he's obsessed with lock picking and safes. That's his expertise. That's what he and, does. But it's not indeed, his job for some reason. And, indeed, and he uh, makes YouTube videos about cracking safes that have zero views, yeah, which is a, a detail I appreciated. Yeah. And uh, he also seems to have a, a superpower. He can like put his hand on a safe, uh-huh. and then through a special effects sequence, he kind of like can map out all of the locking mechanisms in his mind. It's almost like he has like a it, very yeah. subtle form of sonar just by touching it. Yeah, boom. like he can kind of touch it and understand yeah. exactly what what the lock needs to be unlocked. So he's a preternaturally good lock picker. Mm-hmm. He's uh, contacted on his YouTube page. All of a sudden he has one view and a comment. Ooh! 
under comment. And for <laughs> once, reading the comments is a good thing because uh, a thief named Gwendolyn, played by Natalie Emmanuel, hmm. uh, says, "Hey, you want to test your skills?" And they leave him a note saying to go to a particular place in the middle of the hmm. night. He doesn't know what what he's there for. Turns out, I love this concept. <laughs> Turns out, you know, like you know, like you're watching a movie and there's like an underground fighting tournament or like an underground dance tournament or something like that. There's an underground safe cracking tournament. There's a bunch of safes in a circle, and all of these, and this is straight out of Saturday morning cartoons. All of yeah. the safe crackers have like an outfit, a look, and a nickname. They and all look like they really could have confident. their own movie. Yeah, they yeah. all look like they could have their own movie or be like the star of mm-hmm. this film. And the whole thing is they they bring out a bunch of the same exact safe, and whoever is like. The first three people to crack it, they move on to the next round. And then, like, the next two people to crack it move on to that round. And our hero just breezes through this shit. Mm. And then they are enlisted to crack a series of uncrackable safes that are all inspired by... Oh, Wagner's ring cycle. <laughs> <laughs> so they have names like like uh, well, the, the Götterdämmerung. Well, or the, yeah. the Götterdämmerung, which is the final opera in the, the yeah. four opera cycle, was <laughs> the safe from Army of the Dead. Yeah, that was just the first the, one I could think of. And they, yeah. Yeah, they named it Götterdämmerung uh, after the... What we learned is that there were... Three safes made by this mad safe builder. Well, four actually, or four. Excuse me, yeah. three other safes made by yeah. this mad safe builder, and he named them after the operas in the Ring Cycle. So yeah. we have Das Rangold. Yeah, we have Siegfried. We have uh, uh, Die Valkyrie, and yeah. uh, and we have Götterdämmerung. And so, like the whole thing is, w- their plan is to not just steal money from these safes because all these safes are still in circulation. They're used by some of the biggest banks in Europe. Mm. Uh, it's not to steal all the money from the saves because they, anyone can steal money. The goal is to steal money from the most uncrackable saves and become like thievery like, legends. Legends, like their goal. It's like Pokemon. They are just yeah. they got to be the very best. Yeah. They want the reputation of having cracked the four ring cycle vaults. So they end up. They have a, a small crew of of. Uh, there's a tech expert played by Ruby Ophie. Uh, there's a getaway driver made, played by Goose Khan, and then there's Brad Cage. Their tough guy, who's also <laughs> handsome and dating Gwendolyn, played and, by Stuart Martin, um, and and he he they say right at the beginning, yes, he named himself after Brad Pitt and, and Nicolas Cage. Yeah, he wants to be the cool action hero mm-hmm. guy. And um, and there's a moment early on when they finally gathered at their little safe house, which is a cat house. <laughs> that is a, that is it is a house full of cats. Now, the whole thing is that they're trying to like be under the radar, so they agreed to house sit for a cat lady because she would pay them in cash and they could be completely off the grid. Mm-hmm. And there's this amazing line of dialogue, and at this point, I'm totally <laughs> on board with this movie, where Gwendolyn is telling Dieter. Uh, yes, because of we are paid in cash and living in this cat house, we are off the grid. And Dieter says, but we are on the cat grid. <laughs> Trying to sound all cool. And it's the best, it's one of the, it's the best it's line totally, of dialogue. To- totally earnestly. It's the best line of dialogue this year that wasn't in the movie Psycho Gorman. Like, because <laughs> he's so genuine. Matthias Schweikhofer, he was probably one of, if not the best parts of Army of the Dead. It's like him and uh, Tig Notaro. Yeah. Like the two best parts of that movie. Uh, Everything else about that movie sucks. I, 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 movie. I thought it was perfectly watchable stupidity, mm. but like it's it's not an amazing movie. Mm. Uh, he's funny. He's charming in a in a very like he's a dork, but you love him kind of way. Yeah, you respect how good he is at this, and that really helps. Like I think it was Hitchcock who said, like you don't need to like a character if they're really good at their job. Yeah, if they're really good at their job, you will respect a character, and that's all it takes to get wrapped up in their story. I also happen to like his character, but. He's so good at his job, you love him. 
and, and he's sort of like the the knife of the group. Like he's a little bit excited to be there. Everybody else is trying to play it really cool. Yeah, and but, he, that's and that's where he is here too. And so he's just gets sweat. He just thinks it's neat to yeah. be doing crimes. Well, and and uh, the the line of dialogue I was going to point out, and I love this bit of self awareness from the film is they gather this like cool uh, act, this cool crew of people who each have their all individual talents and yeah. he has a line of dialogue like oh it's just like in the movies where we each have our own cool little individual talents and they look at him and they say yeah it's just like that like they're really excited <laughs> to be characters in a heist movie yeah, that's why they're here they're yeah. here because they've romanticized this that's why they're oh. doing this heist so they go uh, and there's you know a long it's it's pretty long film it's over two hours you but, don't uh, feel it though like it's paced really it's well it's paced really well and yeah. Oh, and by the way, the zombie apocalypse is happening in the background. Yeah, that's it is so weird. Unbelievably incidental they, to the rest they of this movie. Throw in a couple of scenes where Dieter was like afraid because, like, that's weird and creepy, right? The zombie because it's happening in America. It hasn't hit Europe yet, mm-hmm. if it ever does. Uh, but uh, Dieter is like having occasionally has a dream about zombies, and this feels like it's only there because of Army of the Dead. It has nothing mm-hmm. to do with anything. It's only there because of Army of the Dead. I wonder if there's a cut of this where they make no allusions to Army of the Dead. I, it is kind of part of the plot because the whole idea is that the world is so concerned about this zombie outbreak. They're distracted that enough that you can You can pull a giant heist like this. Yeah. That, that is kind of the plot, which is interesting. But like, if you saw this movie first, you would be so confused. It would be really weird. And it's kind of frustrating. I wish this movie did stand on its own more. Because although well, like, I liked Army of the Dead, I love this. This is, like, it's really fun. It's light. It's dumb, but I don't care. Um, no, it's not It's not it's, trying to be, like, a hard-hitting crime movie. This is a fun caper of a high crime movie. This is, like, Top Copy or The Thomas Crown Affair. It's yeah, Heists is, are neat, aren't they, kind of crime movie. And In fact, the biggest disappointment is it's about these four safes that they have to break into. And we only get to see three of them in this movie because the fourth is in the the sequel. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of a bummer. Like, no, I, I want to see them finish this story here. I don't want to have know. to go to that other movie to see it because that's well, a completely different saw animal. It. I did, and, and I suspect, but I don't like it. <laughs> I know, and I suspect I have, I have, I have theories. I, I got so interested in the mythology of not the zombies. I don't give a shit about that. Mm. I got so interested in the mythology of like the safe designer and shit mm. that I have theories, and I won't ruin it for you. <laughs> but I have theories about how this could actually continue, and that maybe Dieter's just, fine. And like, I have, I have, I have some neat ideas. I'm not sure if we could go back with uh, Dieter, but we could. Oh, maybe, I got it. Maybe I got we could idea. go like even further back in time to the mad safe builder and like what he meant those safes to be uh, for. R- remind me and I'll tell you what my theory is. I don't want to, because I couldn't tell you my theory without ruining the ending of one oh, or okay. both films. Uh, but I, I have a theory. I think it could be fun. Um, but in any case, uh, this is a hoot. And and mm. I was going to say, Matthias Schweighoffer, fun actor. Mm. Genuinely funny, sweet, uh, uh, charismatic. You want to follow him. Great thing to do. And a really good director. Yeah. This movie is, this is a big production. This is not a small film. It's not as gigantic as Army of the Dead, but it's it's got a lot of locations. It's got a lot of big set pieces. It's complicated. He makes it look effortless. Mm. It's it's paced really well. The acting is really, really fun. All the jokes land. The action sequences, what few there are, are mm. exciting. Um, 
I want to see more movies from this guy. I'm actually like wishing he directed Army of the Dead now. <laughs> like he's really Cause, talented. Because it would have been, you know, fun to watch it and not as ponderous. S- he would have taken yeah. advantage of the, the Vegas locations a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, he could, could, He's cre- really credit, good. Credit, at, where, uh, credit where credit is due. Zack Snyder did work on the story for this. I'm not trying to take everything away from Zack Snyder. Yeah. And, and, uh, and the, I know the Deb- screenplay was written by Shay Hatton. So uh, there's uh, Deborah Snyder, I believe, is a producer on this one. Um, yeah. And look, for whatever reason, we're building out Army of the Dead. Yeah. Army, our, like, there's already an Army of the Dead animated series as well. Yeah. Uh, I think they're, why, doing a, they're doing a movie called Planet of the Dead, apparently. There is, this strikes me as some sort of bizarre media experiment. Yeah. Like, we're going to take a random film. We're just going to make a film, and we're going to see if we can make a universe out of it from the ground up, whether or not there's interest. Yeah. We don't care if you're interested. The mm. important thing is that Netflix is giving us money. Yeah. We're so just going to keep, gonna gonna keep on doing army of the dead spinoffs and movies and TV series to see how big an empire we can build when there's absolutely zero interest from the public. And I got to tell you something. If you're going to keep this approach where everything is a different genre, mm. go for it. Yeah, sure. Fine. I want to say, you want to do a prequel is... that's just Dave Batista being a badass. Like before the zombie movie, and, just, days, and yeah. it's just a Dave Batista action movie. Cool. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll pay. This, I'll, I'll, I don't have to pay. I don't have to pay much to see that. I have Netflix, but like, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll see that. That sounds fun, especially if Matthias Schweighoffer yeah. directs it. Like, I'm, I'm very much, in, I'm very much on board. Go for it. I've, I've seen uh, the the lead actress in this film, uh, Natalie Emmanuel. I've seen her in a few films. Yeah. Uh, she was in uh, the Furious films. She had a, like a very small supporting role in those movies. Uh, she was like, she was a hacker in Furious 7 and, and onward, yeah. Yeah, uh, she was in uh, one of the Quibi films, she, speaking of media experiments. Yeah. She was in Die Hard. Uh, yeah, she was in the Maze Runner movies. Mm-hmm. She's, she's very talented. She's very talented. I'm waiting for her to kind of like break out. Like yeah. uh, she's she's got a lot of potential, but I think she's kind of stuck in sort of supporting roles here. This is maybe uh, along this and Die Hard. She's sort of like as a co-lead, mm-hmm. but I feel like she's capable of a lot more and I'm waiting to see that from her. Uh, this is, this is a proper leading role. Lots mm-hmm. of charisma, good, good romantic chemistry with someone who is playing an unusual character. So mm-hmm. to make that work, but, and but a humane, genuine... likable character. Oh yeah. But like yeah. to make it work in a movie kind of way mm-hmm. is something that is not necessarily easy. And I think she pulls it off really, really nicely. Um, Rubio fee is a scene stealer here. She's very, very funny. Um, yeah, I I dig this <laughs> movie. It's just really what enjoyable. A, what a nice little bit of a, and this is a term I don't use lightly. Escapist entertainment. It has <laughs> almost zero connection to anything mm-hmm. other than itself. It is just a heist, a fun heist movie. Yeah, it is. The whole point is to be amusing and sexy and remind you that if you pulled a heist, it would be neat. If it were really complicated, mm-hmm. there's a gag. I don't want to ruin it, but uh, there's a gag they pull in the first big heist. Where it's a gag about how that's that scene in all of the uh, all the heist movies, where they go through a big visualization of how the heist is supposed to go, mm. and then you see how everything goes wrong. They do a gag based on that. That is brilliant. <laughs> that's a brilliant little gag, and it's just like they know exactly what movie they're making here. Mm. Good for them. <laughs> Good for them. I had a wonderful time. I'm mm. just absolutely delighted by Army of Thieves. Although I will, my one big critique. It's like five people isn't an army. <laughs> Whatever. That's, that's not even. It wasn't an army. I, an army in the in army of the dead. Mm. The dead had the army. I'm looking over uh, Matthias Schweighofer's filmography, and 
he was he's been in uh, mostly German films, but he wasn't an American film I've seen called Fear.com. Remember Fear.com? <gasps> he was in Fear.com? He, he was I've the, never made it all the way through Fear.com. <laughs> Fear.com is shit. It's but, so bad. I've tried watching that movie three times. I've always fallen asleep. It is terrible. He he he's the German guy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit in Fear.com was one of those early, like, oh, the internet's coming, we better make some scary movies about how it's going to destroy us. Little did we know how accurate that would be. Fear.com is about a website called fear.com.com. Fear.com.com. Turns out fear.com was taken. So they had to call it fear.com.com. That tells you everything you need to know about fear.com right there. In that one little bit, you know, every single thing you need to know. Fear.com is just concentrated idiocy. It is is so stupid. And there's there's ghosts living on websites and stuff. Uh, This was in 2002. And, oh, it was um, Stephen Dorff was the cop who's investigating Mm. and snuff websites. Because as soon as the internet became big, everyone assumed that there was just lousy with snuff websites. There are a lot of movies about snuff websites from the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you ever see that film, My Little Eye, or any film about uh, mm-hmm. streaming live on the internet? I saw... Uh, st- have uh, I seen Snyder's Strange Land? I think it did. I saw Strange Land. I never saw Untraceable with Diane Lane. Yeah, that um, one too. Halloween yeah. 8 was a, a, an in- internet, yeah. oh, God. It was an internet uh, scare movie. Oh my God. Uh, uh, Stay Alive was a video game scare movie, but it's so stupid. That's one of the stupidest movies I've ever seen in my life, was Stay Alive. Oh my god! Just there's a scene in that movie where Frankie Muniz they're about to play a video game and Frankie Muniz warms up his thumbs. It's like, like I gotta, I gotta do a little bit. Yeah, it's just like I am ready. Soon I'll be ready to play a video game. And I'm like, has anyone in this movie ever played a video game? For God's sake! We understand there's a TV involved and something with thumbs. Oh god! Anyway, we need to move on. Uh, there's one more movie we're reviewing this week, and it's a Christmas movie. Yay! It's a little dessert. Okay, tell this me a dessert. Tell me about Christmas in Coyotes. No, it's it's Coyote Creek Christmas. All right, is Coyote. there a coyote in it? I'll get to that. <laughs> coyote Creek Christmas is the new Hallmark movie, one of many, and I I was gonna try to see more this week because part of the beauty of these Hallmark movies is they come up with like three every week, hmm. so it turns into this big marathon. But it was Halloween, I couldn't in good conscience like not watch some horror movies, so. I ended up watching like the, this big marathon of Vampiros Lesbos, uh, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, and then Coyote Creek Christmas. Um, it stars Janelle Parrish mm-hmm. as a young woman who is working in Denver as an event planner. She plans events. But every Christmas, she goes back home to the small town in Coyote Creek, where she plans events for her parents, who own an inn. And every year they have a Christmassy kind of event. And this is where she learned about events. And that's where mm-hmm. she does her Christmas. But what she doesn't realize is that her parents are going to spend their last Christmas at Coyote Creek. Is it, is it like Midsommar? They're going to jump off a cliff after this? Yes, exactly. No, no, no. Oh. They're, 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 they're going to sell it because they want to retire. Oh. That's less exciting. That's a little less exciting than the Midsommar ending. I'll grant you do, that. Do they do they enter the film and, and they're given these big bludgeons where they got to to, yes. to whack people who don't die when they fall off the cliff? Yes, exactly what happens in Coyote Creek Christmas. Um, Look, let, let me have my fantasy. Uh, enjoy them, honestly. Yeah. Uh, the place is about to be purchased by a uh, by a, a pair of um, entrepreneurs, one of whom is played by Ryan Pavey. 
Mm. Ryan Pavey, who's got this incredible, like, uh, like Jason Momoa's stand-in kind of quality. He's very big, very muscular, got a deep voice. But he always looks like he's surprised he wound up in the scene. <laughs> he always looks like he's like, oh, hey, uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I have a son and I'm here to buy your hotel. Mm-hmm. Like, there's always you always get the impression that every sentence he asks, he says is going to end in a question. Uh-huh. And it's really great. Because he's just he's perpetually interested, and that way we don't have to be. Um, he's gonna he's gonna buy the hotel, but the parents say, "Listen, we don't want our daughter to know that you're gonna buy the hotel mm. until we tell her, which will be a really long time because that way you can get to know her, and she'll feel like it's a lie." So could you please not tell her for a while so we can have a movie? And he's like, okay. And then he ends up with his child actor, played by Azrael Dahlman. <laughs> he ends up with his child actor. Yeah, his child actor <laughs> who is playing his son. And listen, I don't want to, I don't want to like, uh, uh, I, listen, child acting is hard <laughs> enough. Listen, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to be, I want to be mean here. The kid is not a great actor. The kid is just the kid's yeah. just saying lines. He's in almost every scene, and he's not great. Mm. And I'm sure he's having fun. And maybe he gets better. Maybe this is he's been in other things. He was in the neighbor in the window. Uh, he was in debris. Mm. Uh, he was he's been in other stuff. So maybe he's better than this. But like this is not his finest hour as an actor. Uh, anyway, they meet, and it turns out here's the origin of Coyote Creek. A long time ago. The coyote people. You gonna let me tell the story? No. Okay. No, I'm, I'm gonna interrupt with a long time ago. Coyote monsters. An old man mm. moved to this part of America. I think it's Colorado. Was his name Burbank? His name was Burbank. <laughs> no, he moves. To, he moves to the small town. Mm. And no, it's not small town. He moves. It's all him, right? Mm. And um, one day, he gets a little present on his doorstep. Little little nuts, maybe some leaves, and it turns out all of these presents were being brought to him by marmots. Okay. Marmots, like small rodent, yeah. we- weasel-like rodent creatures. Yeah. yeah, marmots. And the reason why is because the presence of this guy mm. has scared away all the coyotes. So now marmots live here, and the town's mascot is a marmot. He he's. He's a werewolf. He's a werewolf. He's scared off the coyotes because he is a werewolf. But it raises the question, shouldn't this be called Marmot Creek? Isn't this... Mm. It's where marmots live. Mm. You have a marmot who's the mascot of the town. You named it after the animal you kicked out of town? It's like having a city in Kansas called Shark's Reef or something. Yeah, like what? You can't do that. I'm just endlessly baffled by this. Uh, so it turns out that uh, the parents weren't going to have a big like Christmas party thing this year at this inn. Mm. So the daughter's like, well, we can't do that. I have to take control of everything. So she ends up putting on a massive event. And one of the first things she says, this is like four days before Christmas. Mm. Okay. We weren't going to have a big event, so we got to do it all at the last minute. First thing we got to do, we need to get a Christmas tree, she says as she's standing in front of a Christmas tree. And then she so, tells the so people. she turns around and gets it. No, 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 no. This, this is in the lobby. <laughs> this isn't like in the Christmas tree lot. It's already there. And then she turns around and then she's talking to people in the lobby. This is like the staff of the, of the hotel. And she says, okay, I'm standing in front of a Christmas tree saying the one thing we don't have is a Christmas tree. Mm. I need you guys to go get the Christmas tree. They're sitting in front of a Christmas tree. And then later on she says, well, the important thing is that it's a really big Christmas tree. 
So then they go get a Christmas tree, and when they bring it back, they put it in front of two other Christmas trees that are the same size. So now they have three Christmas trees. They have three Christmas trees when all they needed was one, and they needed... Wait, what? <laughs> Clearly they needed three. I guess they needed three Christmas trees. To so, have. Look, there's 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 something that's not being communicated here. And I think it was to the to the production designers mm. and maybe the screenwriter because that's fucking weird. Um anyway, they they end up they 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 do the romance. They romance each other and they're just like, "Hey, you want you want to like get together and stuff?" And he's like, "Nah, I have a son. I don't want to like ruin his life by being happy or some shit." And she's like, "That makes sense." And so then she finds out that he's going to buy the place. And she's like, you were going to buy this place. And he's like, yeah, I promised your parents I wouldn't because I respect them. You're a monster. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And um, uh, then they have a party that's like Christmas from all around the world. And they're going to have foods from traditional Christmases all around the world. Mostly Europe. And um, it's the premise of the Frozen short animated Christmas film. That's a good point. And then, uh, uh, then the staff gets sad. Because you you put all these other cultures here, but you forgot Coyote Creek culture, and I'm like, yeah, we've been doing that for like 50 years. Maybe we could. So, so we, we have could... we have a coyote, and you have to kill it. You have to kill it right here. <laughs> okay, I guess I'll get the gun. No, no, you have to use a rock, <laughs> a really small one too. So it takes a long time. Our tradition. What? It's our tradition. It's a terrible tradition. It's about. It's, just, it's about it's just an ineffective co- tradition. Coyote that Creek is. is about not having coyotes around, so they have to sacrifice a coyote. Let me have my fantasies. <laughs> Get, throw this coyote into a pit full of marmots and yes. see what happens. Um, <laughs> and the marmots are all high on PCP. They can't be killed. That's anyway, a, they, that, that's a Christmas movie. Anyway, they fall in love and stuff. They get in my thing. Um, it's, it's it's fine. I'm mostly <laughs> I'm mostly just perplexed. Is this Hallmark, by the Hallmark thing. Netflix? I, I this is Hallmark. Hallmark. This is okay. Hallmark. Hallmark. Hallmark proper. Okay. Not Hallmark movies and mysteries where they acknowledge the existence of death. Mm. No, no, no. Hallmark where like it's fine. Mm. Everything is fine. Nothing bad's gonna happen here. Even if we make it seem like oh maybe this is their last Christmas because Dad is dying. No, nope, it's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine here. Everything's fine. Mm. The only thing that's like even remotely edgy about this is that it was one point where someone mentions the Krampus. Okay. That's it. It's like, oh, well, someone could be like the Krampus. Okay, cool. I'm glad we did this. Thank you for that. Oh, the other thing that's kind of cute about this, though, is they have a really, 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 really cute lesbian love story. Oh, really? There's like... Yeah. Explicitly stated. Non-heteronormative couple Explicitly in one of these stated. Okay. They're side characters, but they get, they get a decent amount of real estate. Uh, she goes back home, and her best friend uh, knows like uh, a local guitar player who just plays at all the different venues, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, there's this 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 cute moment where they meet in the street for like because the person's come from Denver for mm-hmm. the first time in a while. And um, she's there with her friend, and they run into the guitar player, and I say, "Oh, hi!" And then it just close up on the lesbian friend, just being all wistful and like, <sighs> and then the guitar player is looking at her like, "Hey." And then we see them again, and there's this, this lots of wistful glances, and you're just you're looking at them, and they're cute, and you would die for them, you would die a million times over if it meant they would finally go out, and then they do, and it's great. So what I'm saying is five stars. <laughs> 
This is a, a queer side love story. Yeah, but again, and, these, more real estate a, than a lot of like main Hollywood movies would give and, a queer side story. So good for scene, them. And a scene where they fling a coyote into a pit of marmots. Pit of high, marmots. They're high on PCP. So yeah. um, that's why that's why their neighborhood town is called Marmot Pit. That's like their, their rival, <laughs> the Shelbyville to their to their. Welcome to Marmot Pit, Kansas. We don't take kindly around here. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. So on the critically acclaimed scale goes from C minus to C plus. Mm. C minus is below average. We don't recommend it. C is average. A little bit of good, a little bit of bad, bada bing, boom, average. C plus, above average. We genuinely recommend these movies. They might even be amazing. Hmm. Coyote Creek Christmas. This is on the weighted Hallmark scale. We're grading on a curve here. Uh, and it's a very high C. If you're going for just like generic rom-com thrills... And uh, and a cute lesbian side plot and a weird amount of marmots, uh, you'll get what you wanted. Mm. So I'll give it a high C. Uh, let's move back on to Army of Thieves. Uh, I'm going to give it a C plus. This film is just weirdly delightful. Yeah, same here. This is it's, actually it's, one of the better. It's clunky. Like... It's it's not incredibly intelligent, but it's it's slick and it's stylish and it's fun. It's just a a, a wonderful little puffball of a treat. This feels like the the kind of summer movie I want. Like you know this kind of like blockbustery kind mm. of adventure escapism like everyone's just cool and sexy and having a great time yeah they they try with films like jungle cruise but the jungle cruise didn't really fly no no it's all it's this, really this just, one did this one had a little bit of yeah. a sparkle to it yeah this well it feels like people were genuinely excited to make it and i think mm. that that just adds a nice little element of passion so yeah big old c plus for me uh let's see here paranormal activity next of kin it's a C minus. It's just yeah. it's just boring. It's not offensive, but it is just dull. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's a it's a high C minus because I do think if you can get to the ending, it, it does pick up a lot. Mm. Uh, but it breaks its own rules, and it's way too boring to get to it, mm. and just doesn't really seem like it's worth the effort. So it's a C minus. Uh, let's see here. We've got uh, the Labyrinth of Cinema. The Labyrinth of Cinema is a C plus. I love this movie with every fiber of my being. It's saying important things and it's exciting and weird and exhaustingly energetic. Uh, yeah, definitely a C plus. Please, please, please watch this movie. And then finally, Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. This is a C minus. It's I'm I'm upset that it's a C minus because there's clearly a lot of talent on display here. Mm. Again, it's a good looking movie. It's got a good energy to it. The cast is solid, but the story doesn't work. The themes aren't very well explored, and it's ultimately not very scary. So mm. I don't know what's more, what more I can do with it. Yeah, honestly, I, 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 in addition to those things, I also think that it has this. A rather unfortunate moralizing component where it's not really it seems to be preaching some pretty bad ideas and i don't yeah. don't appreciate that so um, yeah i can't really go into it without it, getting yeah. spoiler territory but that's what i meant by i don't think its themes are explored very well like yeah. it's got like it's got an ugliness to its themes that doesn't seem to be like the scary point like mm. ooh, isn't this scary that they were there's this people who have this dark perspective it feels like no it feels like you have a dark perspective and i don't want to hang out with you mm. right now that kind of thing, you know, like yeah. doesn't. It's like if they so, if this uh, was a podcast, he would turn it off. He would be like, oh, I don't know if I want people espousing yeah. that ideology in my ears right now. Yeah, uh, but but yeah, to, just to make it explicit, that's a C minus. Yeah. All right, uh, that is it for critically acclaimed. Next week, we'll be back next week uh, with reviews of Spencer, uh, the new Pablo Lorraine biopic starring Kristen Stewart. Uh, we're talking about uh, I probably Marvel's Eternals. Uh, because yeah, that's there's a, a thing. There's another uh, Avengers film coming out. Yeah, it's that's a, a whole thing that's happening. It's a Chloe Zhao film. So yeah. the Chloe Zhao thing uh, has me has me hopeful. I, a, I actually a, haven't watched it yet. Nor so, I. Yeah. Uh, there is a new Tom Hanks sci-fi film on Apple Plus called Finch, and uh, probably more besides. And, and, I, and 
Kenneth Branagh's new film. I, no, I think it's the week That's after. That's the week after. Okay. Belfast is the week Belfast after. We'll get to that when we get, because uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yay, Kenneth Branagh's back. Um, but uh, yeah, that's coming up next time on Critically Acclaimed. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Really appreciate it. Uh, we would love to hear from you. So uh, feel free to f- uh, follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to send us an email and talk about anything we discussed on this episode or anything else you want to hear us talk about, uh, you can email us. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. That's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our snail mail address? Yeah, send us an actual piece of physical mail. Uh, it is Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep. And uh, we've also got uh, 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 a soap store, me and my partner, I'm Lampas Da Silva. Salt Cat Soap is on Twitter and Instagram, at Salt Cat Soap, oh, and Facebook as well. Uh, we're currently having a post-Halloween sale, so rummage around. We've got 10% off some of our coolest items. Uh, and uh, the holidays are coming. We're going to uh, be uh, revealing some new stock, uh, some new cool soap designs uh, later this week. Mm-hmm. So stick around, pay attention to our social media, and thank you everybody who's already bought some soaps. It means a lot to us. Reviews have been really, really great so far. Uh, so uh, and they great stocking stuffers. So bada bing. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess that's that. That's that. Thank you everybody for listening. Never forget, everyone's a critic. I'm sorry, what?